So some of my personal studies lately have been on prayer. The power of prayer, the use of prayer, the abuse of prayer, the lack of prayer. Sometimes we just view prayer the wrong way, or sometimes I don't know if we believe what we say about prayer ourselves, to be quite honest. There uh, there was this bar. Y'all know y'all get court cases. Now, this one wasn't in Crystal's law books, but uh, I thought it was good. So, so in the Midwest, there was this bar that uh, had opened up next to the churches. Two churches right beside, right in the middle was a bar. Two churches get together, and they, they finally, you know, it's, it's bad when a bar's got to bring unity among believers, right? That's my first thought when I'm sitting there reading. You know, that's kind of sad. Uh, but it does. It brings some unity. They have this this town prayer meeting. Uh, in the prayer meeting, one of the guys, uh, I don't know, you call it Freudian slip, or if he was just being honest with his heart, or or whatever, but he literally shouted out, Lord, I just wish you would burn that bar to the ground. You know, he was, he was into it, probably one of them Baptist type people, and, uh, you know, it was, it was rolling along. And anyway, uh, they left the prayer meeting and everybody went back to their stuff. Well, a week later, the bar burns down. Lightning strikes, hits some kind of electrical box in the back end, catches everything on fire, and it burns slammed to the ground. Well, the owner of the bar had heard about the prayer meeting. Of course, he heard about the guy that called for the bar to be burned to the ground. So he sues the church and suing the church, or sues, sues, I guess, both churches, sues the, the people that were in the meeting. Uh, and, and suing the, the, the members or church, whatever you want to call it, body of believers, they get in the courtroom and they begin to argue over whether the prayer worked or the prayer didn't work. Now, the weird thing is, now, this is a real court case. This, this judge finally gets up at the end, at the end of the trial, and he says, man, I've got the weirdest the weirdest case I've ever had, I don't know how to answer it. I've got an atheist, you know, the man who professes, I'm an atheist, I don't believe, but he, you've got an atheist that believes in the power of prayer, and you've got a bunch of church people that pray that don't believe in the power of prayer. I have no idea where to go with this case. Uh, and and is, is that the way we treat prayer, though? Do we actually believe God can and will do what we pray about? Because, see, I think this, if we really believed it, prayer wouldn't be our last resort. You know what I'm saying? Like somebody somebody gets sick and they say, well, you know, the only thing you can do for me is pray. What do you mean the only thing I can do for you is pray? Isn't that like the best thing I can do for you? I mean, right? Or all of enough goes on and, and we fall in this line. And, and I've been studying on different levels. So I'm, you know, I'm trying, to, trying to get it right. I want it God's way. You know, because scripture also talks about making sure everybody in the group believes. And if they don't believe, then, then you know, in a kind way, not, you know, we're going to close this morning uh, with prayer over somebody just so you know, so it doesn't, you know, get you there. If you don't have 100 percent belief, don't come down and pray with us. That's not me being mean. That's just you could be in an emotional state. You could have stuff going on in your real life. That's fine. It's OK. You know, we talk about doubt with God's people all the time. It's, it's a stage of life. It's all right. But those that are going to pray and lay hands on, they're not to have that doubt. They're to have that that that, that confidence, you know, kind of like Elijah has here. So, you know, I think sometimes our, our, our view on prayer, our view of coming to God gets really jacked up by real life scenarios. And maybe I, I wonder sometimes if, if we ourselves don't really believe what we say we believe or what we at least profess and try to act like we believe. Right. That makes sense. So I, I want to start this thing off. If you get into to this chapter, you should have it open. Verse one, we get, we get a point right out the very beginning. I'll say this. At the change of leadership, there's always room for an attack. So if you've been with us any time, by the way, you think, hold on, normally you do an intro if it's a new book. It's not really a new book. It's a new book because some dude wrote second Kings instead of first Kings and started. Originally it was all, 
one letter. I was joking with a, with a buddy of mine a couple weeks ago, and I said, well, I guess it's probably Second Kings because the scroll ran out of room, and they had to start a new scroll, so that scroll became... <laughs> Uh, it, it's all the same. It's all the same thing. We divided up, right? So no intro this week. Other than the fact of telling you this, when we ended chapter one, or, first, or we ended first Kings one, uh, we've got a change of leadership that's taking place because we have a king that's dying. Well, anytime there's a change of leadership, that's a that's a pretty much right on time time for attack. You know, so, so think about it. You can think about that even in your spiritual walk. When you change leadership and you choose not to be the leader and let God be the leader, that's when attacks are going to come quickest and first. You know, so, so it makes sense on, on all levels. Well, it's no different here. So verse one, we get what it said. After Ahab's death, Moab decides to rebel. There's a change of leadership. There's an attack. So here it is for starters. Ignoring God gives place to the enemy. Point number one, so easy. When we ignore God, we give place to the enemy. When godly influence begins to diminish, that's when we see a void in leadership. You know, brother back there prayed for this country. Uh, you, you can kind of, you know, fill in gaps there with some of the problems that goes on with our leadership. And most of the time it's because and I'm not talking about being a patriot or any of that stuff. I'm talking about being a believer of God. OK, so I'm not an American or any less American. You know, I, I promise I bleed it more than anybody. All right. But the reality is we are first called to be God's people and part of his kingdom. OK, so we need to be praying that for these leaders. We need to be praying that for for these men of God to, to step up. Um, and today, as we see this, this son, Ahaziah. Pick up right where his dad left off. He acts the same way his dad acted. You know, we, we talked about Ahab and, and how evil he was. It even has a verse at the end of the, the book that says he did more evil in the eyes of God than anybody else had ever done. You know, how bad do you have to be for God to write that about you? He was the worst one up until this point in history. And then came Cliff. Um, you know, so you, you got you got all that, that going. You know, that's what you get for sneaking by and trying to get tissues for people and be nice. Right. He picks up right where, what did I say, right where his dad left off. So hear, hear me, parents. This kind of unseen example and, and, and lesson that's in there. Parents, when we pass on a lack of faith or a lot of sinful living, it ought to be a warning to us. This guy acts this way because it's the way he's brought up. His dad acted this way. His mom, which was most likely Jezebel, we don't have a record of that, but if, but if he became the next king, we can assume that that evil witch, um, you know, got, got him there. So when godly influence begins to dwindle, leadership begins, gets void in the family. And when leadership gets void in the family, the values of the parents that are godless, they get passed on to the children. Go back to the end of First Kings. Remind us where we left off, 51 through 53. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Judah's reign. He reigned for two years. So we already know he sucks because he only gets leadership for two years, right? He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He walked in the ways of his father, in the ways of his mother, in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. So all these bad guys, you know, that he walked in the ways of. Um, he himself was responsible for being looked at as being caused Israel to sin, is what the end of verse 52 says. Um, then verse 53, he served Baal, he bowed into worship to him. He angered the Lord God of Israel just as his father had done. This, this is no, no great guy right here. And because God is getting completely ignored, the enemy finds place. If you ignore God, you give the enemy place. In this case, it's Moab. Moab is the place. Moab is symbolic of Satan coming in, right? So here's the question. Have we provided a place for the enemy to get in on our lives? Is it our marriages? Is it our, the way we're bringing up our kids? Is it our jobs? Is it, is it travel? What is it? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27 Paul's writing one of the early churches. He says, don't give the devil an opportunity. Most of your translations are going to have in place of opportunity. It's going to have 
the word place, which uh, translated into to the to the Greek that he'd probably been writing because these people, well, all the people in that area at least spoke it, it, it is is to pose, which is don't give the enemy a specific spot or a location. Don't give him a ground to stand on. What ground is it that we give the enemy to stand on? Sometimes I think we just give the enemy too much confidence or too much. We have too, we have a lack of confidence in ourselves. so We get too much confidence in Satan doesn't have the right to take anything without our permission. I hope we realize that as believers, like he, 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 he can influence us. He can plant evil thoughts in us. He can make suggestions. He can throw temptations our way. But, but a Christian is not helpless and he's not a pawn of Satan. If we desire to hold on to sin, then we give the enemy the ground he needs to launch an attack on us. If I cherish my sin like, like these guys and this family is doing at this, this rain right here, then Satan is going to seek to exploit it. But if I remorse for my sin, it is so much quicker to get back right with God. Part of our problem sometimes is we wait so long to remorse. We wait so long to feel bad. We wait so long to, to feel guilty and let that, that feeling sink in and change the way we do. The quicker we remorse, the less danger and the less damage that is done. You want relationships to recover quicker? Remorse quicker. Be sorry quicker. Address the problem quicker. You know, one of the the only thing I do, and I try to poke bears in premarriage counseling. That sounds good for your pastor, isn't it? Like, try to, what can I do to stir the pot up a little bit and find a, a problem in your relationship? Why? Because if you address the problem, it gets solved. If you don't address it, it gets bigger. It's no different than when I walk with God. If we address our problems, we can solve them a whole lot quicker, right? God is not a God that wants to be ignored. So look at this thing. I guess you can say the second lesson since the the first one is when we ignore God, we give give the enemy room. Ignoring God brings on personal injury. Now, that's just common sense. There's no spiritual insight there. There's not, you know, for, for us, we look at verse two and it says this enemy's attacking. I have no idea what what this king was doing on top of his palace. All right. I, I know just from history that kings typically had that very upper level that, you know, the poor people didn't get. So he's up there. Evidently, it wasn't a really nice house because he's just got lattice panel around it. As my brother just read, you know, if you just got lattice around it, you're just a, a normal kind of guy, right? Everybody's like, I got lattice around my porch. Well, you're just normal. Um, you know, it's all right. It's okay. I didn't say it was bad. I just said it was normal. Uh, but but he's, he, whatever's going on, he trips and he falls. And when he falls, he most likely falls all the way to the very bottom of the thing. He gets hurt. He gets hurt so bad that he wants to seek advice to know what's going to happen. You know, no different than, than Head wanting to wear this monitoring system. No different than Matthew wanting to go get a, an MRI. When something bad happens to us, we want to know what's going on on the inside. Like, what do I need to do? How bad is it? And I'm going to recover from it. Am I not going to recover from it? What is it? This guy's ignoring God brings on personal injury. I say he's ignoring God and brings on injury because he probably wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. Maybe he was like a David and chilling on top of the, the palace while the rest of the guys were going to army to take on Moab and figure out what they needed to do to stop this revolt and everything that was going on. OK, so it, and this applies to real life. Right. When we don't honor God, when we, when we live unhealthy lives, we get sick faster, don't we? We die earlier. Right. We you drive fast. You you have a risk of getting in a car accident and, and dying quicker or being injured quicker. You know, so it brings on personal injury when we when we live wrong. Right. God will not be ignored. He gets our attention. Look at this thing. Uh, uh, ignoring God brings on a pursuit of idolatry. This king, who, by the way, is actually named. I don't know why his parents named this, but he's named after somebody who's supposed to be pursuing God. But but in this in this pursuit and in this desire, what he says in the end of verse two, he says this. I want you to go ask the other gods. I want you to go check with them 
about what's going on. So he's got to literally leave his area and start pursuing something. So you, you can you can test yourself this way. What do we trust in? Because all of us trust in something. We all have faith. The question is, what is your faith in? And, and when when life gets hard, when bad news comes, when trouble comes, that reveals exactly who you're worshiping and who you're trusting in. This guy's got a problem. The first thing he does, he seeks out somebody else's answer for his problem. We, we don't even, I mean, we know this guy, you know, that's Lord of the Flies. That, that is how it translates out, which sounds kind of weird. So here's what this guy did. This guy was Lord of the Flies because when flies would come over the crops, this would be the God they prayed to to send the flies away. Now, why would you want to go to that God to ask about your outcome in life? You know what I'm saying? Like this, this guy, what, what do the flies do? They fly over poop. You know, they fly over dead things. Uh, you know, fly is not exactly like your, your great thing that you want to think of when you're thinking of stuff. But this is the God that he, he sends them to check out. Here's what really matters because all gods, Satan's behind every single one of them, right? Habakkuk chapter 20, uh, 2, 18 and 19. And I would say in the realm of a no God can't really give you any answer anyway. But here's what 18 says. What's the use of a carved God so skillfully carved by its sculptor? What good is a fancy cast God when it tells all its lies? What sense does it make to be a God maker who makes gods that can't even talk? Who do you think you are saying to a stick of wood, wake up or to a dumb stone, get up? Can you teach anything about anything? There's nothing but on the surface. There's nothing on the inside. I read that in the message because I think it gets the point across a little bit better for us. Well, what are we to think when we create our own gods and expect them to have some sort of answer? Right. He gets no God because he's he gets no answer. I'm sorry, because he's praying to no God. We ignore God. We pursue idols. We pursue idols. We pursue empty promises. I was looking up. I had to even show crystals to prove that it was a real thing. So anybody ever bought an invisible gym when they were growing up? Nobody bought an invisible gym. I want you guys to go Google it because you're going to think I'm, I'm lying when I tell you this. You've seen it on TV. An invisible gym. You better be careful how you answer, girl, because I will call you out in front of everybody right now. All right. All right. I'm watching you. Here's what invisible gym was. They did have commercials. They did have great packaging. If you want to buy one right now, it's on eBay. I looked it up yesterday for $99.99. But when you buy an invisible gym who is a real-life superhero, you get exactly what you pay for, an invisible gym. You rip open that box, and it's invisible. It is nothing there. But they sold thousands and thousands and thousands of these things. Now, you would think after the first one, somebody's going to call someone and be like, hey, man, there's no need to buy an invisible gym. Get your kid a shoebox <laughs> that's empty and put it in there and say it's invisible gym. But they did it. Why? Good marketing, good packaging. Emperor's new clothes. That's what my wife said. Y'all should hang out. Right? So, so this box is empty just like idolatry. Idolatry is full of good marketing, good packaging, but empty promises. And anything we place ahead of God is the same way. It can have great marketing, can have great packaging, but the promises behind it are empty. And we had better start being careful who and what we're searching for the answers when we're looking in the wrong places, at least trusting in the wrong places. We turn in our times of trouble reveals our true heart of who we are. We play with fire. You get burned. Look at three through four. God had finally had enough of this whole line of family. And three, it says that the angel of the Lord had told Elijah to Tishbite, 
I want you to go on down there and interrupt their travel. He's sending his people to go meet this other guy. I want you to go interrupt. I want you to stop where they're going, stop their idolatries, and I want you to ask him a question when you get there. And what I want you to ask him is this. Is there no other God in Israel? You know, that, that, that whole phrase, a couple phrases that really stood out to me in this chapter, and that was one of them. So the title, if you saw it at the beginning, what was, is there no other God and then a blank? What area of your life do you leave that you don't let God be God of? Right? What other area is it? Do you have a God of your marriage? Do you, do you have God in your, in your, your, your families? Do you have him at work? What area is it that we leave? And it's the same thing with prayer. Or when we ignore prayer, rather. We ignore it because he's not God of that area. And we go on about and we seek other things. Now, sometimes we even seek good things. We'll seek counseling. We'll seek medical attention. We'll seek help. And now there's anything wrong with those things. But when our hope gets in those things instead of our hope being in God, there's a problem. Right? When we've elevated those things above, what God can do. The funny thing is, I've seen people who go to counseling after counseling after counsel for different counselors because they didn't like what the first counselor had to say. They didn't like what the second counselor had to say because it didn't fit their agenda, you know. And they'll go through all this stuff and they'll finally make it somewhere. And along the line, somewhere, somebody wisens up and asks them, how much you've been praying about this thing? Oh, I haven't. So you've been seeking an answer from everything else, but you've yet to spend time with God about it. I don't know where to move. I don't know what to do. I don't know what job to take. I, I don't know what I should be doing. Have you prayed about it? Why is prayer our last resort all the time? Why is it like this leftover thought? I think if we were in the same area that, that these folks are in right here, I think God would be sending an Elijah down to us asking, is there not a God in your life that you can speak to? Is there not one that wants to be part of your marriage, part of your child raising, but part of every area of your life, part of every decision-making process? Is there not a God in your life? God, I, I love it. God provides his interruption. We're on our way. Why don't we seek God first? Why do we trust in the lesser things, right? Even at the very beginning, we got a church at the very end who gets an, a prayer answer. Or very beginning, I'm sorry. Who had a prayer answer. The one wants to deny the power of prayer. Oh, no, you can't sue us for that. We didn't do it. What do you mean you didn't do it? You prayed for it. Huh? We've got to get real with it. And here's the truth. Isaiah isn't going to get real. He's not going to get a real answer because he's not talking to a real guy. And here's the sad part behind it. Maybe like him, and here's what I think it is. Maybe like him, we know what the real truth we'd be getting if we asked the right source, but we don't want that. We want to be comforted with a lie. We want to be comforted with, with something that we're okay with, with our opinion, with somebody that likes us. We do it all the time, right? Think about it. Your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, whatever, they get on your nerves, who do you go to? Your like-minded friends. So you're talking bash that guy together, right? Huh? Or bash that girl together, whatever, right? Your kids are bad, you go to other people who's got bad kids. Right? So you talk about them little hellions on your own. Right? You won't believe what they did now, right? Oh, I will believe. And then you have this competition to see which kid is worse. And it's like you want to win, but you know if you win, it means your kid is worse. So I don't know why we want to win that, but that's what we do. Right? We do this. We, we, we love it. We ignore God. We ignore what God wants to give us, which is the right answer, to seek what comforts us. Church, your comfort is not God's number one priority, I hate to tell you. Now, that ain't exactly the kind of church lesson we want to have, is it? God loves you, but he loves you too much to let you get comfortable in your wallow of sin. All right, dive into this thing. Verses 5 and 6, a little deeper. All right, these men, they come back to the king, and they tell the king, we were on our way to go get that God, that prophet, uh, that, that you wanted us to talk to, but on the way, this, this crazy guy stops and talks to us. And, and here's what he, 
Here's what he tells us. You've got a death sentence, man. You're not going to be able to, to make it through this thing. Verses 7 and 8. Look back at 7 and 8. Then the king asked him, what sort of man came to meet you and spoke these words to you? Now, you're supposed to be representing me. Who in the world thought they had the courage to come up and talk to you this way? And they replied, a hairy man. Now, I don't know if he just didn't shave it all. Uh, and he had the ability to grow hair on his head and his face, um, unlike me. Or if his back had hair that bad, or if he just wore a lot of really hairy animal clothing. Um, all that encompasses under that word. But but this is the answer they give. A hairy man with a leather belt wrapped around his waist. As soon as they speak this, here's what the king. Now, this is the king, right? Oh, crap. That's Elijah. <laughs> now, I don't know if you catch it when you read over it or over what Wilson was reading. Here's what's awesome. This guy is so well known. Now, whether he's cuckoo in the head because he's hairy and he has this leather belt wrapped around his waist or whatever. So it's kind of like a John the Baptist figure, uh, which if you remember what John the Baptist does come on the scene, a lot of the people ask, are you Elijah? Um, you know, so, so, so they would have had that same style going, that, that same crazy outside feeling. But this guy's made such an impression on what he's done that the king himself doesn't bat an eye. He knows who this guy is. Are we doing things big enough that matter enough that interrupt enough that the world knows who we are? Think about it, church, because the longer we're quiet and the longer we're not doing nothing, the more the world can do it their way. But if you and I would start to get a little crazy acting, maybe, you know, I don't know what your crazy is, but if we would, we would get a little wild and, and a little audacious in our faith. I mean, think about it. Think about the, 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 just the, the movement that's taking place right here. At least if they don't know who he is, they know who's he, who's he is, who he belongs to, right? So you can write this down in your notes, and, and I hope it gets you when you get home and you're reading over it. Does the enemy know who you are? Enemy, do this, this was a man of God. No doubt he had probably heard about it. I wonder if he'd even seen some of it. Can you imagine when, when they come back and they're shouting and they, they begin to tell them, oh, it was Elijah, or they didn't tell them, you know, it was this hairy guy with a... What picture came to his mind? Was he sitting in the chariot with his dad when Elijah ran past it? You ever thought about that? Was, was he at Mount Carmel when Elijah was on Mount Carmel taking on 400 false prophets and called down fire from heaven? Was, was he at the house when, when Jezebel and, and his dad were threatening to kill this prophet? Was he at the house when his mom fell out the window and dogs began to lick up her blood and everybody remembered, oh, Elijah said that would happen? How much did he really remember and know about this guy? Enough to despise him, right? And, but he also knew this. Here, here's what you need to understand, because the very next scene, we're going to look at it in a minute. The very next scene, he now sends these men where? Back to Elijah's. No longer. You don't go back to your old mission of talking to that other guy. I want you guys going to Elijah now. He knew enough not to ignore him. Now, believers, listen to me. The world will not like what you got to say a lot of times. But if you're real... If you're audacious enough, if you're courageous enough, if you're bold enough, they will know enough not to ignore you. We ought to be believers where the world looks at us and they know not to ignore what it is that goes on in us. Right? All right? Now, if we don't live that way, it ain't going to happen. Look at verse 9. He sends out these soldiers again to go get Elijah and bring him back. Verse 9, it says the way they they approached him. What, What do they do? What's the first scene? I mean, you got to picture it. If you don't picture it, you don't get it. Is it just one captain going, hey, Elijah, I need you to come back with me? One captain and 50 men for one guy. What is it, Chuck Norris? 
I mean, how awesome, how bad does he have to be, right? This guy's got to have a commander and he's got to have 50 men to go get him. And they don't even come with any respect. Maybe they didn't know about Mount Carmel. Maybe they didn't know they were playing with fire. And if you play with fire, you get burned, right? They roll up in there and they say, hey, you're to come back with us. Elijah doesn't pay them the slightest bit of attention. Right. And here's what we got to grab at the very beginning before we jump in to, to what Elijah does. Because because here's a little mini sermon in the sermon. This chapter's got a lot of lessons on how to approach the word of God. Because what, what is Elijah? He is a prophet. But a prophet does what? Prophesies. He speaks the word of God. They didn't have an act. They had scrolls. But they didn't have the actual, you know, Bible like you and I have as far as in a complete form. So they would rely a lot on prophets. All right. So they're wanting to get the word of God. Here's the first thing they do. They approach it with numbers. Do we do this when we open scripture? Do you go into the Bible already having your opinion and the opinion of the world before you look into something? Don't approach God with numbers, man. The world might tell you majority wins. Majority don't win when it comes to God. God is the majority. You know, so you and God, that is the majority. I don't care what the, the other side got and how many they got, right? Numbers don't prove that you're right. And the very first thing we see right here, and you can even look at it this way, the enemy will try to intimidate you with numbers. Think about it. What, what tactic is there to come get one guy with a captain and 50 men? It's the tactic of fear. It really reminds me, I don't know if you guys remember the New Testament, when they go to arrest Jesus. And he's in the garden and he's playing with his with his disciples and, and followers and, and they bring a legion to get him. You know, I've, all, I've always loved that to me because I'm like, how awesome must his taekwondo skills must have been <laughs> for them to have to bring a legion to arrest. No, they knew that he spoke for God. They knew that the, that at the drop of a hat, something serious could happen. But these guys forgot that. And they forgot the numbers weren't the winning thing, right? If you try to respond the wrong way to fear, the enemy gets you. Does Elijah respond the wrong way? Man, he don't miss a beat, right? He don't miss, yeah, you're fired, literally. Doosh, gone, 50 crispy critters straight up on the concrete right there, right? Second way they approach God that's wrong. So not only with numbers, with the command. They come, they don't come, they don't come ready to receive a command. That's what we do sometimes with, with the word of God. We should be coming to the word of God ready to be commanded, but we go to the word of God commanding. God, here's what I want you to do. God, here's how I want you to do it. Who are you to think you get to tell God what you want, how you want it to happen? Right? It don't work that way. How, how often? Look, look at their words. What do they tell him? Come down. That was the other big phrase that stood out to me. So, so the first phrase was, there's no other God here. And the second phrase is come down because the world wants you to come down. Come down from your, 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 God is the only way approach. Come, come down from your, your little wonderful Bible reading time and just watch TV. Come down. Come down and, and swallow your morals and do this. Come down and, and lower your, your guidelines just a little. Come down. Come down, come down. When God's constantly calling us up, right? Who is it? And you need to write this down for you on a personal level. Who is it that's calling you to come down? You need to know who's calling you to come down. Is it your emotions? Is it your pain? Is it somebody in your life? Is it a situation in your life? Is Well, it's all the government for every single one of us. But anyway, uh, we need to keep that in mind. So, so here's the next thing. And we wonder, how's, it, how's Elijah able to handle this? Well, here, here's the first reason Elijah can handle this so well. The position he's in when trouble comes. If you're in the right position when trouble comes, it's a lot easier to deal with trouble. 
Where, where does it say? If he's got to come down, where must Elijah be? Up. You ain't got to be smart to figure this one out, right? Anything you to come down, you got to be up. It's a good lesson for us. And most of the time in Bible time, when somebody's on a mountaintop, especially in the old days, they're having time with God. They're worshiping God. They're hearing from God. Elijah was faithfully worshiping God in his call to come down. And it's easier not to fall further down when you're in the right position already. Some of us fall because we're not in the right position when the enemy comes. Once we're in a compromised position, it is so much easier to keep on falling, right? Hey, man, if you're in the wrong place, the wrong time, you get caught, you get trouble. It's easier to fall away. The second thing Elijah does, not only is he in the right position, he's got the right confidence. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 it says, Elijah responded to the captain. If I'm a man of God, because, you know, he wasn't sure because they, they were just coming up there asking. May fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then instantly fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. Look at this confidence, man. Right? If I be a man of God, he's not scared at all. He's not backing down none. He's reflecting like a Romans 831. If God be for me, who can be against me? He's reflecting like a Psalm 27 when David realized, you know, I have nothing to fear if God's on my side. You know, and that's the kind of attitude we ought to have. That's the courage we ought to have. Do we have courage to face the enemy? Or is our faith easily shaken when, when fear comes, when danger comes? The confidence of Elijah reflects his faith. Look, look at his expectation. A miracle right out the door. What, you straight out, what is your expectations of God? See, sometimes fear will get in because we don't have high expectations of God. We're worried. We're scared. You know, some of you would, would have something strapped to your chest today, and you'd be scared to death because you didn't have a clue, and the doctors didn't even have a clue what was going on. Head, man, he's ready to roll. It don't even matter. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no fear because we're not worried about it. Like, it, it doesn't have anything to do with it. My God? Spoke the world into existence. My God brought dead back to life. My God stilled the storm when it needed to be still. My God brought blind back to those that couldn't see. What has your God done? If we're worshiping the same God, shouldn't we have a little bit more confidence in him? Shouldn't we know that he's, or shouldn't we expect at least that he's going to protect us? We call him father. Is there not a father in this room that wouldn't do anything to protect their children? Is God any different then? Suddenly, 50 crispy critters on the ground, right? And God wants us to call on him in the right manner, too. Because look what happens. They, they didn't learn enough, I guess, the, the first lesson. So they send another one, another captain, another 50 men. This guy's an idiot, by the way. I'm just being honest because he's not he's not scared at all. He's not backing down at all or, or, or anything like this. He, he gets to him and he says, you need to come down now. Y'all ever had like one parent that you disobeyed and the other parent comes in and throws that now command down? That, that's usually Crystal and I's tag team approach. When Reese doesn't listen, I come in right after and I throw the listen now. And then he listens. Because if not, he'll become a crispy critter on the ground. Right? That's how it works. This guy thinks he's got that kind of authority. He's approaching, he's approaching the word of God with haste. Like, I, I want it quickly. I want you to respond quickly. How often we try to tell God, God, I want you to do it quickly. I want you to do it in your time, right? Fighting against God isn't very smart. Kind of reminds me of two ditch diggers. There was two, y'all heard of two ditch diggers? All right, two ditch diggers sitting down in the ditch. You can imagine if you've been digging in a ditch your whole day, you get a little mad when that boss man's just sitting in the tractor doing nothing, right? So, so one ditch digger finally musters up enough courage and he comes on over to the boss man, you know, knocks on the, he's probably got one of those fancy tractors like Cody over there. He's got AC and all that good stuff going on. Anyway, he knocks on the window and he says, Hey, uh, why do you get to sit up here and, and we're down there digging this ditch by hand? Bossman says, oh, that's no problem at all. It's a matter of intelligence. 
This digger pauses for me and goes, what do you mean a matter of intelligence? He goes, well, here, let me show you. He jumps down from the tractor. He walks over to this tree that's right by the, the, the road. And he says, I'm going to put my hand right here on this tree. And I want you to punch it as hard as you can. This digger, he's like, hey, this is great. So he rears back, goes, punch. Guy moves his hand. Boom, nails the tree. Looks at him and goes, it's a matter of intelligence. The guy goes back to digging his ditch. About 15, 20 minutes later, the other guy's looking at him and says, man, what did you figure out from the boss? He goes, it's a matter of intelligence. He goes, what do you mean a matter of intelligence? He goes, here, punch my hand. Let it sink in. If you don't get it, your friend will tell you, and then they'll laugh at you for not getting it, right? We've got 102 charred bodies on the ground, 50 men from each legion and the captain from each one of them. Yet Elijah's still just chilling there, good to go, right? Ahaziah still has learned nothing. He calls on his third captain and he tells him, hey, I want this guy here and I want him now. Folks, we better learn. God don't come on our pace. Right. God don't answer on our time. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are better. And when we're seeking him like this, disasters right around the corner. Verses 13 through 15. I love 13, at least for, for this guy's sake. A little humility. Finally, look at 13. The king sent this third captain with his 50 men. Third captain went up to him, fell on his knees in front of Elijah and begged him, man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants be considered precious to you. What's the result of Elijah's faith? We've got a captain and 50 men that are now coming in a humble way to seek God's answer. You see what your faith can do if you would be bold enough to live it out? A changed life instantly, right? What the church lacks today, I think, is confidence sometimes to do the right thing. This time, a, lead, a leader of the, the band of soldiers realizes they needed a different approach. So we talk about approaching God the right way. You know, coming at, here's the right way to come at You come at it with humility. God is looking for us to come with humility. He's not looking for us to boss him around. He's looking for us to come with repentance, sitting pride to the side, and, and doing things and approaching things the right way. Look at Psalm 34, verse 18. David writes early in his ministry, he says, Yahweh is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Sometimes you got to get broke so you can realize how close God is to you. That's kind of where David was, man. We don't like that, but God uses that. God is always ready to. Really, when you think about this whole scene, there's mercy of God. What does God tell him? You're going to die. How many people know when they're going to die? Not a one of us. So this guy knows, like, I'm going to die. I got to get right. Maybe if he'd have been like Nineveh with, with Jonah or something like that, God could have had more mercy. Look at 15, 15 and 16 here. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down. Don't be afraid. So I, I don't know if Elijah maybe thought something was going to happen to him or not, but the angel made sure to let him know nothing's going to happen to you. So he gets up and he goes down and he tells this king the same thing he'd been saying the whole, the whole time. Because you inquired from the wrong God, you're going to die. Church, hear, hear me, because this is, this is probably one of our real-life lessons that we fall into sometime. Elijah doesn't change his message because his audience changes. He gets before the king, and it'd be so easy when we get before people of authority, people with money, people with power, people with popularity, people that we want to be approved of. So easy to change our message. Elijah comes with the same message, man, you're going to die and you're going to die because you're seeking the wrong God. Don't change your message because of the audience that you're around. All right. We're tempted to change that sometime. Verse 17. Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. It happened. It happened. Now, here's what we need to understand about fire. 
Fire can either consume you or it can purify you. And that's in real life and that's spiritually speaking. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Paul writing yet again an early church and a young church. And he tells them, every man shall be made, every man's work shall be, shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he has built reupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so by fire. What's fire doing to you in your life? Spiritually and physically speaking. Is it consuming you? Is it eating you up? Or is it purifying you? Now, nobody likes to go through the fire. But the lessons behind the fire are great. The abilities and and the connections we make behind the fire is wonderful. Elijah's message is real simple. It is not healthy to ignore God. It is not healthy to approach God the wrong way. And maybe our question today is, go back to that prayer thing. It's not whether we're atheists or not. The real question is, do we live like atheists? Do we act like atheists? Do we say one thing, but but do another? I I pick because Reese's Reese's are... uh, our special child, right? We, we, we've got one that I can get straight real quick. And we've got another that sometimes doesn't get straight real quick. And then we've got a little girl who I just got to do the, the snap and, and she gets it because of fear. That's what you got to train them in, right? But our, but our unspecial one, he's got this thing now where, where he'll, he'll say, oh, I got it. I'm listening. But then he'll keep on doing whatever it is he's been doing. Is he really listening then? Is that what we do with God sometime though? God, I'm listening. No, you're not. Because if you were listening, you would start doing what God's saying. You would start heeding the word of God. You would start letting it penetrate and change it and purify you rather than consuming you, right? They live like God doesn't exist. The most important thing is not, it's not even about these guys. You know, the most important thing you can answer this morning is how do you approach God? I mean, think about it. We can read about people all day long. We can sit right here. So lunchtime, I can keep going about all examples in Scripture on how people did and how people didn't approach God. But what it really boils down to is how are you going to approach God? How are you going to let God change things in your life? How are you going to deal with trouble when it comes in a godly way or an ungodly way? Right? They, they, they've got this, this song. They're going to say that it's all about him. So it's not even about you and I. It's about we have a God that desires to connect with us. Is there no God in your life taking charge over the areas that you need answers to? And if there isn't, man, you'll keep on seeking out false answers from invisible gems. Right. But if there is, man, we might be able to get down to the bottom of something and let him change everything that's going on. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much, Lord. Lord, I thank you for this this chapter, God, as short as it is, as sweet as it is. There's so much application we need to grab a hold of. God, I pray that we not only read your word today and and look at it, Lord God, and and spend time together, Lord God, but we let your word penetrate our hearts. Lord, we let your word make a difference in our lives. God, that we will come this morning, Lord God, we will bow at your altar, Lord God, with full confidence like Elijah had. That you protect and you handle the situations of your people. And, Lord God, whatever command you tell us to leave this room, to leave this gathering, Lord God, that we will approach it the same way, without doubt, without waver. God, that we won't change your word 
and your commands to make them fit what makes us feel good. Lord God, it ain't about the feelings, Lord God, unless the feelings change us. Lord, I pray that you come on in, Lord God, and do what you want to do with each of us. In your great and holy name we pray. Amen.